At a certain point, one of my colleagues uh, in women's studies started inviting me to feminist conferences. Uh, you know, saying, does music have anything to do with gender? And at the time I thought, well, nobody ever said it did. I don't know. And, but, but, but then as soon as the question was posed, I mean, the answer was obvious. Of course it does. It's everywhere. Uh, it is informing certainly opera. And even uh, when I was writing about opera, there was all kinds of hysteria from musicologists. And, you know, that, you know how does opera have anything to do with gender? And, but, uh, but I also started bringing it into instrumental music, which was uh, the great taboo. Can musicology change the world? There are many different kinds of ologists who are making a difference around the globe today. Epidemiologists are fighting a deadly pandemic. Climatologists are helping us understand the dangers of global warming. Sociologists are describing the perils of technology run amok. With such high stakes, those of us who study music would not seem to have all that much to offer. We can't cure diseases or solve the climate crisis or stop Facebook from destroying our democracy. But I fundamentally believe, I really do, that we still have a significant role to play. Welcome to season two of Sound Expertise. I'm your host, Will Robin, and this is a podcast where I talk to my fellow music scholars about their research and why it matters. On this season, we'll be speaking with many different kinds of academics, musicologists, music theorists, ethnomusicologists, anthropologists, about ideas that I believe can change the world, or at the very least, change how we think about the role of music in it. We'll learn about the importance of spirituals in the civil rights movement, how algorithms curate our musical lives, the sexiness of 17th century madrigals, what Rebecca Black's Friday can tell us about internet virality, and much more. And if musicology can change the world, then without a doubt, my guest today is one of the scholars who has done so. Susan McClary, professor of music at Case Western Reserve University, is inarguably the most controversial musicologist alive today, if not ever. Since the 1980s, her writings on topics from Monteverdi to Madonna have fundamentally changed how we think about the relationship between music, gender, and sexuality. Professor McClary's groundbreaking work, including her pioneering 1991 book, Feminine Endings, has been subject to intense scrutiny and debate much of which, as we will discuss, is less about her actual thoughtful research and more about conservative anxieties about what kinds of stories get told and who is allowed to tell them. The musicological world we live in today has been profoundly shaped by Professor McClary. Let's hear how. So for my kind of generation of scholars, um, it's really kind of impossible to imagine what musicology would be without feminine endings um, and and kind of your your work more broadly. Um, 
but you obviously grew up, you know, in a scholarly world without the book that you ended up writing, and and that was not necessarily as focused on issues of, of gender and sexuality and and power in music. So maybe just to start off, could you talk a little bit about what musicology was like when you became interested in musicology, mm-hmm. what the main issues were, how you kind of got started to have an interest sure. in musicology? I was hooked on early music when in history survey, when I was an undergraduate, this would have been around 1966. Our teacher played, I think Harnoncourt's Orfeo for us. And that was one of the first big recordings with original instruments. And I thought it was the most amazing stuff I had ever heard. Now I had, I was a piano major at the time and was a coach and accompanist for nearly everybody in my school. I was at Southern Illinois University. And I actually thought at the time that you could put any score from the 18th or 19th century in front of me and I could tell you what to do with it. And I still believe that. So, Um, suddenly here was this music and I didn't have a clue how it worked, not a clue. And I thought, wow, this is the most amazing stuff I ever heard and I don't have any idea how it works. So I actually thought that what musicologists did was what I could do with 18th and 19th century music only with early music. So I went off to graduate school at Harvard thinking that that's what I would do. I would figure out how early music operated, only to find that musicologists did not deal with music at all, not at all. Uh, the, uh, The two routes that were open for us, musicologists were supposed to do archival work. We were supposed to go and find new sources, uh, new uh, information, but we hadn't, we weren't supposed to be distracted by the music. It wasn't supposed to be part of what the we did. The details of the did. score, <clears throat> right. And, uh, and music theorists uh, really were not interested in history and certainly weren't interested in early music. So nothing that I thought I was going to do was really available to me. Um, And I was put on a track to do an archival dissertation. I had become very interested in a seminar run by Nino Pirata uh, in Alessandro Stradella. And again, I listened to this music or I I played it on the piano. There there weren't recordings. So I would sit and I would play this stuff and I would think, damn, I don't have any idea how this works. And this is amazing stuff. And, um, but then I would realize, no, no, I'm supposed to be upstairs finding where I might discover new biographical sources because that's my job. So the idea was basically dig up more and more information about these obscure figures rather than actually kind of understand how their music was constructed. So I would, 
Uh, I would do that for a while every day. I would uh, poke around in the library and, uh, and then I would think, oh, I'm going to take a break. I'm going to go down to the practice room. So I'm going to play some, through some of this stuff again. And then suddenly there would be a tap at the door and they were closing the building. This happened day after day after day. And, um, and finally, I just decided, you know, this is really all I'm interested in. You could put all the information in the world about Alessandro Stradella in a mailbox across the street from me, and I'm not sure I would be compelled to go and get it. <laughs> so the I, power was not in that, it was in the actual music. No. Yeah. So I I went to my advisor and I said, so what I want to do is figure out how 17th century music works. And he said, that doesn't make any sense. It doesn't work. And I said, well, yes, it does. And I want to be able to figure out how, you know, what are the mechanisms? What is the grammar? And he said, okay, you know, there are a lot of smart people who have tried to deal with this music and they didn't get anywhere. Here's a rope, go hang yourself. So with that green light, I uh, went off and I decided that's what I would do. Now I was married at the time, which meant that ever, all the professors had written me off. Uh, I was not going to make anything of my life. And they told me that. So they actually didn't care what kind of foolishness I thought I was going to do uh, because I was married and I was just going to have kids and I was just going to spend my life uh, uh, washing diapers. So um, this was uh, my green light. And, uh, and so I, I spent my time reading Italian treatises of the 16th century, because that's the last place where people actually thought they knew what their music was doing and wrote down what they thought it was. So I spent a lot of time reading Zarlino and people like that. And, um, and then I spent a lot of time just at the piano playing the music and forbidding myself from think, using my tonal tools because I realized those did not work. So I put right. a clamp on all of the music theory I knew and didn't allow it to uh, come to the surface. Wow, influence, yeah. Um, during that time, I actually lost my ability to speak because I had so tamped down my verbal side of the brain uh, in working with this that I, uh, one day I went to the, the door because there was a UPS man there and I just went, I, mean, I, I could not talk. So I thought, okay, this has gone far enough. <laughs> Um, but I, and I started drawing strange patterns on napkins and things like that. I mean, I had a sense of what I wanted to do. I also realized that, uh, you know, if Stradella was weird, Carissimi was even weirder than that. And Monteverdi was, uh, was strangest yet. So I decided that I, I would try to start with modal Monteverdi for which we have materials. 
and then my work worked my way forward. So a dissertation started off to be about Stradella, ended up being about Monteverdi. Right. So the reason like you had to lock down your theory chops and the reason why your advisor told you that it doesn't make sense is because the whole kind of grounding of any look inside music that musicology was doing was based around tonality and post 1700 ideas, right? And, and you wanted to say, this is not tonal music. We have to find a new vocabulary to describe it. Is that That's right. Of- uh, because we weren't going to be able to get anywhere. The, the principal right. theory that surrounded this music was that it wasn't modal anymore, but it wasn't tonal either. And so there was this kind of nowhere land. And, uh, and it seemed to me that I had to start with a very strong sense of how late 16th century modal music worked. If I could analyze that music in the same way that I was able to work with 18th and 19th century music, then I could begin to see what had to shift in order to get us to mid 17th century ways of doing music. I I couldn't start with tonality and go backwards. Right, right. Right. And, uh, and, and so what I, discovered it, if you will. And and these are the basis of my books, Modal Subjectivity and Desire and Pleasure in 17th Century Music, is that it's really not a matter of pitch, it's a matter of temporality. It's a matter of taking very, very simple patterns, really just the descent from five to one, and, and figuring out how to prolong that with the chords that we understand to be tonal, uh, they're cadential patterns. But uh, what composers are doing in the first decades of the 17th century is figuring out how to take this, you know, those cadential patterns, which are very, very clear to everybody and figure out how to push further and further and further uh, the point where you have to say, and now we have arrived. Um, so, so we're dealing with a radically different temporality. And uh, the texts that are chosen by Monteverdi or Kurosumi or any of these people, I mean, they all are dealing with that sense of now we know how to be airborne. We know how to take something that had been pr- pretty much lockstep and make it go like that. And that's what tonality then turns out to be. Now, uh, those old modal structures, that five going down to one, uh, which is the strongest progression you can have in the uh, 16th century, is what Schenker discovers from the other direction, kind of digging backwards. Right, uh, right. right. So uh, what I was looking at is the invention of all those middle ground strategies, you know, how to take this very simple thing, which turns out to be the background of, of all tonal music. Um, but, but as long as we were just dealing with chords, we weren't going to get anywhere at all uh, because the, the hierarchy, the levels of which they were working were so radically different. Right, it's a different system, yeah. And so, I mean, one of the things, and I can't remember where where you wrote it, but I, I enjoyed this reading it, was, um, you know, you said part of the appeal of, 
of 17th century for music was it was the sexiest music you'd ever heard. What how did that factor into your analysis? Like what what was about that music that had this kind of eroticism or sexiness to it that that kind of latched you onto it? Right. Well, I I mean, uh, a large part of it is that uh, that sense of of desire. I mean, the the simplest pattern we have for uh, creating and then relieving desire uh, in music is a is a five one progression at a cadence. Uh, you can prolong a dominant, and we all yearn for that resolution. Uh, you know, I can make you beg for a pitch that you didn't care about uh, a minute ago just by creating that buildup uh, and then withholding uh, the resolution. And you will beg for that resolution, right? Yeah, right. So that is a sense that, uh, that really gets harnessed in the 17th century. You have, uh, you have cadences in the, in the 16th century, of course, but they're not concerned with damming up all of that energy and prolonging and postponing and all of that. So, uh, you know, it's a, it's a matter of taking some devices that had been very localized and figuring out how to use them for mobilization. Right, right. Um, and, and that makes for this, you know, this very eroticized musical language mm. that, uh, that emerges in the, uh, in the 17th century. And so the kind of work you're doing on, on Monteverdi in the 17th century is unusual for its time, but it's also not the, it's not the work of feminine endings that made you so controversial, you know, a decade or, or a couple decades later. So, you know, I was, I was interested in reading how that trajectory kind of unfolded, which involved, right, a series of kind of peer review rejections of, of your early work. Can you talk a little bit about, <laughs> if it's not too painful, some of these rejections and what they signified and, and how that got you to work on later music and different kinds of music? And sure. And I mean, uh, uh, if, if somebody had, had just taken that early stuff on, uh, on modal analysis seriously, I probably would still be happily doing that and, and musicology wouldn't have been turned over. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but I would get rejection slips that just say, you don't seem to understand, this music doesn't work. Um, my very first uh, AMS presentation was on uh, Monteverdi's Curura Amarilli, in which I was uh, explaining that that head-on collision that everybody talks about as an added ninth chord. And they wonder, well, you know, so what's the problem? You know, it's just a ninth chord. Um, it's actually a head-on collision between two modes uh, that are very carefully set up. So, uh, so I gave this talk and just said, if we think of this as mixolydian, this is where you know, all of these things are occurring and this is how to make sense of all of these anomalous parts of this mandrel. And um, there was no gender in it. There was no sex. There was no nothing. It was just, um, uh, if we think about this as modal, then you know, there are these things that make sense. And I almost got lynched. Uh, people were screaming 
Uh, I mean, I have, I've somehow or other always tripped onto controversy. Uh, you know, here I was just this graduate student giving a talk on a madrigal. And, and I mean, really all hell broke loose. And uh, Claude Poliska, this very grand old musicologist at a certain point stood up and just said, you know, it, it, you all have to stop this. This is just obscene. And um, so then I started sending out uh, uh, papers to get published. And I always got back these things saying, you don't seem to understand, modes don't work. And, and I, I just said, or this music doesn't work. I mean, how can we as musicologists uh, drag our students through Dufay and Akagam and Josquin and Monteverdi and all of these people and then say this music doesn't work. I mean, this just seems crazy to me. It seemed crazy at the time, it still seems crazy. Um, so I wasn't getting anywhere. I was an assistant professor. I didn't have a word in print um, and I didn't seem to be in, about to get anything in print. Um, I was at the University of Minnesota and there were some very stimulating interdisciplinary programs there. One of them was the Women's Studies Program uh, and one of them was a humanities center. Uh, the humanities center was hooked up with the University of Minnesota Press, which at the time was the main translator of, of all of the European cultural uh, theorists. Right, right. So I was meeting Lyotard and Foucault and Derrida and all of these people. And, and I thought, uh, Okay, so you know there are ways of thinking about culture that we need to be examining and bringing into musicology. Um, at a certain point, one of my colleagues at uh, uh, in women's studies started inviting me to uh, feminist uh, conferences. Uh, you know, saying it does music have anything to do with gender? And at the time I thought, well, nobody ever said it did, I don't know. And, but, but, but then as soon as the question was posed, I mean, the answer was obvious, of course it does, it's everywhere. Uh, it is informing certainly opera. And even uh, when I was writing about opera, there was all kinds of hysteria from musicologists. And you know, then, you know how does opera have anything to do with gender? Um, but, uh, but I also started bringing it into instrumental music, which was uh, the great taboo. I guess part of this too, right, is that you, you know, the way in which that people were saying this music doesn't work talking about 17th century music was because there was also kind of a misunderstanding about the later music, right, which is that you kind of wanted to address too. Like you had to figure out the later music and how that worked in a different way to get to the earlier music, right? Maybe this is what you're about to say. Yeah, but, yeah. no, yeah. I think that's that's precisely uh, right. I mean, uh, once the question of tonality as contingent arises, then I had to say, well, what is it when it does arrive and what does it mean and what does it do? Uh, you know, I mean, how is it an active cultural force? And that, uh, it brought me very much into the 18th, 19th centuries. 
of course, like all musicologists, I was always teaching history surveys, always teaching courses on opera. And, and so every time I would go through these, I would, I would hear and, and notice more and more things that uh, were, uh, that responded to cultural theory, that responded to feminist theory, uh, that responded to all of these things. Uh, but in order to make the early music uh, make sense, uh, you know, I had to question what kind of sense 18th and 19th century music made. And how did feminist theory kind of help you do that and start to ask the questions that, that you began to ask? Uh, well, the question of desire, uh, which I had intuited all the way back in my undergraduate years when I first heard Orfeo, uh, um, I mean that it, it became not just a question of is there desire here, but you know, following Foucault, I started thinking, so desire has a cultural history. It is shaped differently. Um, and, and one of the things that's exciting about music is that we have these extraordinary traces of the ways that, uh, that a composer like Arkadelt in the middle of the 16th century thought uh, that desire felt. Uh, we have Monteverdi, we have all of these very different ways of construing the body, of construing desire, of construing uh, physical pleasure, of construing gender. I mean, all of these things have histories and they're audible in music. Um, that's why in all of my work, I always start with music. I never start with, oh, here's an interesting idea. I wonder if there's any music that does that. It's always, I hear these things and then I start thinking, hmm, uh, does anything else at that time correspond to that? I mean, are these, uh, am I making this up? Is this subjective? Or uh, are these structures of feeling uh, that uh, also show up at this time in literature, in the visual arts, in dance, right. uh, you know, but I always start uh, with the music. Um, yeah. And so Feminine Endings is, you know, kind of collects a series of, of work that you had been developing, I guess, through the 80s, right? Um, can you talk a little bit about how those publications developed and what their reception kind of was leading up to this book? Sure. Um, so the, the pieces that had already appeared were uh, a piece on Monteverdi, which I had presented uh, at the AMS meetings on how uh, Monteverdi construes uh, Orfeo and Eurydice, uh, the ways in which he shapes their discourse uh, with uh, Orfeo always as, uh, as harnessing uh, and, and creating these huge trajectories. And Eridice always just eating her words, you know, you know, just constantly apologizing for anything she says. And uh, so her music is actually much more complicated. I mean, how do you create this sense of, I want to say something, but, I, I just can't. And, uh, you know, and that um, I, I thought really linked up a lot with what we know about uh, literature of the time, how uh, masculine discourse and 
discourse by men uh, put in the mouths of women, uh, how those operated. I also had been teaching a course on women and music. My students at the time were all listening to Madonna. This was mid eighties. And so she was coming through Minneapolis and was doing a concert. And I decided, well, I should go and see what this is like. And, and so I went uh, really very dubious. I mean, I didn't know popular music. Um, I was just blown away uh, by her force and by uh, just the feminist critique that I was seeing. I thought, my God, you know, I mean, she is doing things that I wouldn't even dare do or think about doing. And she's doing that in front of everybody. Um, and so I, I wrote a piece about her and, um, and I wrote a piece about uh, Laurie Anderson, um, who at the time was known by people in popular music, but not otherwise. And I was invited to a conference called Time and Space in Recent Music. Uh, and I thought, well, I mean, that would be a great thing to do because she is uh, working so much with those, uh, those uh, parameters. And only to find that everybody else there was dealing with pitch class sets. <laughs> 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 and here I was talking about, you know, a, a sex and gender. <laughs> oh, well. Um, that, that's kind of the common pattern, I guess, in this period of, of you showing up at these conferences. <laughs> I guess the odd one out. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. It was kind of oops. Um, I mean, there was a place where I I did quote Madonna. Uh, you know, so oops, I didn't know I couldn't talk about sex. You know, I mean, <laughs> it was that's it has been sort of a, a mantra all the way through this. Yeah. When you know, I mean, you were the I guess maybe a little bit of the oddball at some of these settings, but you also kind of discover a couple important colleagues, and then this term, the new musicology starts to float around. What did that, when did you first hear that you were a new musicologist and what did that mean? And, and how did you kind of assemble something of, I guess, a, a movement or, or I don't even know what you would call it. But. We didn't assemble anything. Uh, uh, the other people who were uh, close colleagues of mine who were also working on those uh, uh, cutting edge issues, though it, often in very different ways, were Rose Subotnik, who had just published an amazing piece in uh, Jams on Adorno and late Beethoven. And um, so she got me reading Adorno uh, and uh, who still is you know, just always by my elbow. Uh, it be, I mean, he says some things, especially about popular music that are clearly just uh, bonkers. But when he's dealing with the German canon, uh, he, his, his, his project is to say, if we had listened carefully to the music, would we have been able to stop the Holocaust? So the stakes are enormous. And um, he finds ways of reading all of that music in ways that are culturally informed. And I still find what he has to say about Beethoven or what he has to say about Mahler to be you know, just unsurpassed. 
Um, so all of that I got from Rose. Rose also pushed me to read Foucault. Uh, and uh, from Foucault, I got the gender, sexuality, desire, all of these things have histories. And, uh, and that was tremendously important uh, for everything I did. Another person uh, very important was Larry Kramer, who was just beginning to do hermeneutic work, uh, starting with songs, uh, Schubert songs, his very early uh, books. Uh, nobody else in musicology was trying to look at a score and say, what does it mean? Uh, and Larry was doing that. And Larry and I then uh, met up at AMS meetings and became very, very close friends. Probably the most important person was Richard Leppert, who came out of musicology, but also art history. And he was dealing with uh, musical issues uh, uh, as they connected with visual iconography. And um, so I think that was my gang. Um, nobody was was forming a movement. Nobody was trying to pressure anybody to do anything. Sure, sure. Um, and so we were all kind of surprised to find that this label had been put on us as though we were uh, involved with a movement. Uh, you know, I, I don't know. Uh, I mean, our work is, is sympathetic. We're uh, involved with uh, similar projects of trying to deal with cultural meanings inside the music itself. Otherwise, I think our, our work has not a whole lot uh, in common. What I would say is that uh, when we started off, and I think uh, that, uh, that we all still are in that position, uh, we all wanted to create a bridge between history and analysis. Um, and that was much more important than any uh, kind of ideology uh, or any kind of cultural theory. It was, I mean, how do we break uh, that, uh, that logjam where musicologists uh, heap up more and more additions and factoids and music theorists label chords? I mean, you know, I mean, how do you make history and uh, an analysis speak to each other. And that is at the core of what all of us were concerned with. Um, not feminism, not any of any particular set of arguments, except that we ought to be able to read music in cultural terms. Hmm. And that's, I mean, underlying all the essays and feminine endings but on the other hand like feminine endings is probably received more for the for the kind of sensational or at least the response is more kind of focused on the more sensational aspects what was it like when that came out how did that what what kind of impact did it make as a book um, well you know I had been hanging out in feminist circles by that yeah. time. Uh, when I would give these uh, papers at feminist conferences, I mean, I seemed really middle of the road. Everybody was really excited that somebody was trying to talk about music. Uh, they, uh, they liked uh, what they heard, but, uh, but it, was, it really was not radical at all. And so when I published the book, 
I didn't really expect very much. I mean, this is University of Minnesota Press. Uh, it was a really drab looking book. Uh, I mean, you know, who was going to pay attention to this? Uh, I didn't have any kind of reputation. I had published almost nothing. Uh, uh, I had, and, and so this book comes out and it was largely my detractors that made it into a sensation, into a huge deal. Uh, for those of the people who, who uh, sort of agreed with me, it was, yeah, like, yeah, sure, yeah. I agree with all that stuff. Okay, <laughs> you know, now what? And um, so I wasn't really expecting to have the explosion that occurred. Uh, certainly not the hostility, the animus, uh, the death threats. Uh, you know, I mean, you know, it's, it, it was really kind of extraordinary uh, that uh, the, the violence of the response, except I think back to my, my foray at the AMS when I talked about Mode and Cruda Amarilli and, and got similar reactions. You know, I don't know if you want to talk about this. We don't have to talk about it if you want to, because I'm sure you've had to litigate it a million times. But do you want to talk about the Beethoven 9 controversy? Uh -huh. Why did I think this was what was going to happen? <laughs> I, yeah. Again, I'm happy. Like, we can cut it. No, no, no. Because rereading it, as you've said before, it's not that controversial. It shouldn't be controversial. Uh, the, you know, the idea of taking, I guess, bringing, yeah, just bringing extra musical ideas to music is, yeah, I don't know. Tell, how did you come to write this essay yeah. and, and what did it, what did it, what unfolded? Yeah. Well, that essay, let me, let me start by saying that every other year since 1980, I have taught a seminar on Beethoven quartets. Yes, I remember reading that. I'm deeply immersed in, in mm -hmm. Beethoven. I, I just turned in my grades for the last iteration of that course. No one who has ever taken a course with me could ever imagine that I would have anything except the most worshipful um, uh, views of Beethoven. Um, uh, so uh, what, what came, uh, this came about when um, Greg Sandow, who was at the time a, a critic of new music in the Village Voice, and who, whose work influenced me a lot. I mean, I uh, started reading everything he had to say about the downtown uh, composers in uh, the 1980s. And, uh, and all of my work in postmodernism is really owing to him. So the, the, the article really is about temporality. It's about uh, <clears throat> minimalism and the ways in which uh, minimalism is creating a very different temporality. Uh, and and it, uh, it was confusing to a lot of people at the time. Uh, they found that the music didn't go anywhere. It just didn't do anything. Uh, so, and that was a, a set of, of Glass and Reich and uh, you know, all the biggies. And, um, so one of my friends in Minneapolis, Janica Vanderveld, uh, was writing some uh, sort of minimalist pieces. And 
Uh, and you know, she would get all of these responses. Well, you know, it just doesn't go anywhere. You know, this music sucks. And uh, so the, the principal thing that that essay meant to do was uh, to say, no, it works in a different way. Uh, it is organizing time in a different way. Now this should resonate with what I was saying about the 16th and 17th century, right? I mean, that's sort of my mantra, this is what I do. And, um, and so uh, uh, I, I wanted to talk about why composers might have wanted to turn away from the power of that teleological um, uh, trajectory that, that tonal music has. Um, and, and a lot of it is violent. Uh, it, it condones violence, it incites violence. Uh, the end of Carmen, for instance. I mean, Bizet makes us so desire that he kill her uh, by with the music that he sets up. You know, I mean that that sense of of tonal closure demanding that sacrifice is so powerful. And uh, so uh, Greg was in the Twin Cities at the time. I can't even remember now why, uh, but he was uh, supposed to write something with me for the Minnesota Composers Forum newsletter. And we decided that we would talk about minimalism. We would talk about Janica's music, uh, about the ways in which people just said, you know, nothing happens. So, so we thought we needed to have a, an example that we thought was completely obvious of, uh, of the violence that tonal music can bring about. And uh, it wasn't the whole Ninth Symphony. It certainly wasn't all of Beethoven. It was that moment at recapitulation where there has been this tremendous buildup, this tremendous desire trajectory. And then just when it appears that we are going to have to cadence on, uh, and that meant in within the economy of that piece, go back to the beginning where, you know, you're nothing. Um, there, you know, suddenly slams on the brakes and just keeps banging and banging and banging. And it is horrific. I mean, I've had students get up and leave the room crying uh, when we have, uh, when we're listening to that piece, not because anything I've, I, that I've said. I mean, we've inured ourselves to how really kind of awful that is. Uh, but, uh, but of course he keeps working and uh, there's the sublime third movement. And then the fourth movement tries to figure out how to get to a conclusion that is viable right, right after that. But then the first movement that is cataclysmic and um, uh, Adrian Rich, the great feminist poet had just written a poem, you know, about, about Beethoven's ninth and um, so that seemed like a good thing to cite. So, you know, this isn't just me making this up. Of course, either, yeah, which, yeah, yeah. You know, you know, so. <clears throat> and, and remember, I was writing this with Greg Sandow. Yeah. Uh, and so it came out. And uh, there was a, a mini hysteria fit just in Minnesota when it mm. came out in the news. And just to be clear, so you describe this moment as 
uh, do you call it a rape? I can't remember the exact. Yeah, language. yeah. As a as a, as as a rapist who cannot find uh, 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 closure, and so just keeps you know that strangulating rage. Um, uh, so I mean, one of the there, I, you know, as it turns out, and uh, Bob Fink has gone back and looked and, and found that music critics going all the way back uh, to E.T.A. Hoffman have, uh, have described this in sexual terms right. and as sexual violence. I mean, this is not new. I think what is new is the idea of a woman saying this. If you had written this, everybody would go, oh, well, really, really interesting. <laughs> but I mean, it means that women are conscious during sexual acts that they know that, you know, what, what these patterns are like. Uh, I mean, it was taboo on so many levels uh, that, um, you know, so, so yeah, it, it, it all blew up. Um, do I regret having done that? I don't know. Uh, I mean, I, I guess I, if I had known that uh, this would probably appear on my gravestone, maybe <laughs> I would have pulled back. Uh, I certainly didn't want that to be the only sentence I was ever known for. Um, but, uh, but no, I, I still agree with that. Uh, and, uh, and so there it is. You know, one of the things that struck me just now, you and and it strikes me in your work, is that you really are very closely attached to the classical canon. I mean, you, you just described your Beethoven seminar as worshipful, which is, I think, not a word that a lot of even Beethoven scholars would necessarily use to describe their relationship to his music. How do you kind of navigate this deep, I guess, lifelong love of, you know, the the, the masters, quote unquote, with finding these ways to show that there's something else going on in this music that is often not talked about when we have these more kind of hagiographic accounts of, of what's going right. on. Well, as, as I said, you know, it, it, the, at, the, at the root of all of the new musicology is how to open musical texts up uh, uh, to uh, uh, cultural meanings. Some of those meanings are are, uh, are great, some of them. I mean, they all participate in, in a misogynist culture. Uh, you know, it's not that this composer made this stuff up out of nothing. Uh, these are all energies. These are all ideas that are prevalent in the literature of the time. Uh, so nobody's making it up. Um, these are cultural texts. And, um, and they uh, have uh, both the most wonderful things that uh, our culture has ever produced and also some of the most pernicious. And, you know, this doesn't mean we then censor, we don't deal with this music anymore. Uh, we pay attention to the ways in which these things are being negotiated uh, within the music. And um, that to me makes them much, much richer. Uh, I wouldn't go back in a heartbeat to let's just lock all of that stuff out and label the chords. I mean, you know, 
I mean, this, it's way too important to do that. Um, so when you're dealing with how music is, uh, is constructing models of subjectivity, uh, subjectivity is always contradictory. Uh, right. As uh, these issues that are being worked out. And that just makes the music more and more fascinating I, to my mind. Uh, it, you don't say, oh, here's some sexism, let's throw this over to, in, the, in the heap. Uh, yeah, it's sexist, so is all the literature of the time, so what? Let's, uh, let's move on and, uh, and deal with other issues. What was it like for you? I mean, it's, it was so striking to me that two of your books from the 2000s are your dissertation kind of many, many decades later, <laughs> what did it mean to actually finally get to go back and do that work and not face these rejections and, and also know that you had established yourself as almost a, seemingly a, a scholar of different topics, although obviously that's all kind of part of, of one big idea. Right, right. Well, uh, you know, I finally uh, had the credentials uh, that allowed me to say, this is really what I want to do. Um, I had just published with California, uh, my block lectures, Conventional Wisdom, which is to my mind, maybe my best book. Nobody pays any attention to it, but- uh, I, I, read, I just read it, I reread <laughs> it, I should say. I enjoy it, very much enjoyed it, yeah. yeah. Um, uh, but, uh, so then Mary Frances, who was the editor there, I said, well, so, you know, what would you like to do for us next? And I said, well, now I would like to do my dissertation. <laughs> <laughs> and Book she, one normally yeah, yeah, like she sort of gulped and whatever, you know, yeah. okay. Uh, I mean, she was assuming that I had become scandalous enough that people would even read my modal analysis. Uh, you know, these books haven't been great sellers, uh, but but people who have worked their way through modal subjectivities and desire and pleasure uh, have. Um, have benefited from them, I think. Yeah, I enjoyed reading them. Yeah. Um, uh, but, but that is where it started. And as, uh, you know, as we've talked today, whether it's Beethoven or Laurie Anderson or any, any of the things that I've dealt with, I'm always dealing with this issue of temporality. I mean, how notes are just being shoved around in ways to produce the experience, uh, one experience of time or another experience of time. And why does that change over time? That's, that's incredible, you know? I mean, why uh, in the 1970s did Philip Glass seem really radical and now his music is, underlies all the soundtracks that we have? I mean, what happened between the 1970s and now that makes that into a lingua franca? That's incredible. Right. Right. Um, I mean, that's what we need to be thinking about is how um, musics uh, get put together at first in resistance patterns. He was resisting serialism and uh, many things. Um, and how does that then become the way we understand our emotions so thoroughly that Hollywood will hire him or somebody who is a pseudo Philip Glass uh, to, to do that music for soundtracks. That's, that's an amazing uh, development. Yeah. 
the I mean, going back to the beginning of you sitting at the piano and and playing Stradella or Monteverdi, like what is when you latch onto a new piece of music that you want to figure out, like what is your listening process? Is it always at the piano? How do you kind of end up generating your your analyses? Is there like a a Susan McClary listening approach that you recommend or? <laughs> Not really. Uh, I mean, when I, when I realize that uh, I don't understand a kind of music, I will just play it uh, until I think that I have made some kind of sense of it. The only other time I ever did anything like that deep dive into <laughs> losing my ability to speak was when I decided that I really needed to come to terms with 17th century French music, which didn't make any sense to me at all, not at all. And, um, and I finally decided I couldn't stand going through history survey yet one more time. And we hit Proberger and I go, oh God, you know, I mean, you know, this doesn't make any sense, but here it is. <laughs> and, um, you know, and I read a lot of people and, and, and even, even people who specialized in, in 17th century French harpsichord music said, well, it's actually kind of slight and it doesn't do anything that there were people who liked it, you know? And I think, oh God, you know, this is pathetic. How do you devote your whole life to something that you don't know how to make sense of? So I, I, get, I decided that I would do a deep dive and I would just sit and play, uh, it turned out Chambonnier. Uh, these little dances that are like 12 measures long over and over until I could make some kind of sense of them. Um, uh, my husband, Rob Walser, had to live through this, you know, as I was doodling around and, and trying to figure out how to make sense of this. And, you know, and once again, it was an issue of temporality. Uh, French music wants you always to be in the moment. If you think of any of that music in Bach terms, it all fails you know, because it's not going anywhere. It's again, like what I was dealing with with Jenica Vanderbilden uh, in that piece, right? It doesn't go anywhere. Right, right. Well, then what is it doing? And what it's doing is figuring out how to make you attach to every moment as though it is the most blissful single moment you ever existed in. But then you have to go to the next moment and that's also amazing. And then the next moment, you cannot think of, uh, you know, of no, 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 this is where it's going. This is not going anywhere. Uh, it is getting you into the moment and then that moment and then that moment. Once you start, uh, playing it and hearing it that way, um, then suddenly it's so rich and it's so unlike any other kind of Baroque music. It's not Italian, it's not German. It is, um, you know, it, it is based on a completely different set of priorities. So uh, that was my other deep dive. And, um, and, it, and, and it was, I mean, I understand that uh, that saying I play until it makes sense to me, how subjective that sounds. Um, but if, if, if it doesn't make sense to me, I'm certainly not going to be able to play uh, to, to perform it 
or talk about it or do anything else. Right. Uh, so uh, how do I make sense of this? Once I have a, a, you know, a sense of how this works, then I start doing research. You know, I mean, I mean this is so backward from everything that everybody has taught. <laughs> um, but I started saying, okay, does anybody else in France at this time, does anybody talk about this? And it turns out, yeah, they do. Uh, they talk about um, in, in philosophy and in theology of never thinking about tomorrow. Uh, always, you know, just treasuring today, treasuring this moment. Um, the court of Louis XIV was based on pleasures being given to you one by one. Uh, don't think about the future, don't foment revolution. You know, just always be there in the moment. And, uh, and that turns out to be the ways that everybody is talking about other dimensions of, of culture. And, um, and structures of feeling in the 17th century in France, which is radically different from any place else. Yeah. Well, thank you so much. This was really fantastic. And, and I really enjoyed it. And, and I learned a lot. Okay. That's it. That's it. Thank you. Okay. <laughs> it was really fun talking to you. Susan McClary is the Finette H. Coolis Professor of Music and Head of Musicology at Case Western Reserve University, and I am deeply grateful to her for that great conversation. If you're new to the podcast, you can check out our previous season on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you're listening to this, and on our website, soundexpertise.org, which also has links to some of Professor McClary's work. My intrepid producer, D. Edward Davis, has returned for season two. And as always, I'm thankful to him for his great editing and awesome theme music. You can check out more of his work as a composer on SoundCloud at Warm Silence. If you want to share any thoughts or questions about today's show, you can tweet at me at Seated Ovation. I would also be remiss if I did not do a quick self-plug for my new book, Industry, Bang on a Can and New Music in the Marketplace, which is out now with Oxford University Press. More info on that is at williamrobin.com industry. We've got a spectacular lineup of interviews for season two of Sound Expertise over the next few months, and I hope you keep tuning in. We drop new episodes on Tuesdays, and you can check back in next week for my conversation with musicologist Braxton Shelley about the poetics of Black gospel music. It's going to be a really good episode. Thanks for listening.